Hey, good morning. Thank you for joining us for a recent sermon from Harvest Baptist Church. I'm Mark Likens. I'm the lead pastor here at Harvest. We're a Bible-believing, gospel-centered, grace-driven church family right here in Natrona Heights, Pennsylvania. And if you'd like to learn more about our ministry, you can visit us on Facebook or at harvestbaptist.info. Now, I hope you enjoyed today's sermon. It's my prayer that this will encourage and equip you in your relationship with God. invite you to turn to the book of Ruth. I am well aware of what time it is and that I do not have uh, a tremendous amount of time for a sermon, uh, far less than I typically have, and I will be mindful of that and will not keep you here until 1.30. 1.25 maybe, but not 1.30. Uh, I'm just kidding. Book of Ruth. We're starting the book of Ruth today. If you're new, uh, we love the Bible. We love books of the Bible. And my favorite way to preach, which is what I do the majority of, is to take a book of the Bible and work through it verse by verse by verse, uh, just understanding what it says. So we are going to do the book of Ruth. Big picture, this is a beautiful love story. How many of you all like love stories, uh, love novels, happily ever after? Okay, how many of you like that? Uh, Ruth is that. Ruth is the Cinderella story of the Old Testament. It is about uh, this woman who is actually a refugee. She is a stranger and a foreigner who comes to the land where the people of God are, and she has nothing and she needs everything. And there is a man who has compassion for her and mercy for her and even love for her and takes her in and is a redeemer. And this little love story points us to a bigger love story that as we walk through this book, you'll see the big love story that we too are people who need so much and God comes to us in the person of Jesus Christ to rescue us and to love us and he's our redeemer and this points us to Jesus and the gospel over and over and over again. So we are going to dive in. I'm only going to do five verses today because it's all I have time for, but hopefully we can get a few thoughts and principles, insights that will help us and be, uh, be important for our life this morning. So Ruth chapter number one, uh, read it with me if you would. Ruth one, now it came to pass in the days when the judges ruled. Let's stop there for a minute. What does it mean in the days when the judges ruled? This is, if you're familiar with Israel's history, this is a period of time called the judges that was from the death of Joshua to the coronation of the first king, King Saul. This period of time is actually written down for us, not in grave detail, but in pretty good detail, in a book called Judges, because it was the period of the Judges. And it's 21 chapters long. It actually is the book that's right before Ruth. So we just read Ruth 1.1 in my Bible. It's right there. And if you go to the, the verse before it, the end of the book of Judges, it will tell you about the days of the Judges. And here's what it says. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. That's the period of the Judges in a nutshell. It was this time of anarchy where people did whatever they want, where they don't want to have rulers or people telling them what to do. I don't want parents to be my authority. I don't want rulers to be my authority. Uh, we don't have a king. I don't want God to be my authority, God's word to be my authority, police officers to be my authority. I want no authority. So it was a day of anarchy where you could basically take a prison riot and spring break and Mardi Gras and put them together, and that's the book of the Judges. It is a time that is not pretty for the people of God, and they're constantly walking away from God. It is a time of apostasy where there is a ton of bad doctrine and false gods that begin to be introduced 
to the people of God, and they begin to embrace this and walk away from God's word and his law, it's a time, honestly, of apathy where you are hard-pressed to even find one person who's zealous about the things of God that God can choose to lead. And, and because of that, he ends up using these judges and these characters that are really, really uh, flawed and less than apathetic, or less than energetic. They're more apathetic, but God chooses to, to use them through the book of Judges. So it is a time that is not pretty for the people of God. And we're told that in this time there was a famine in the land. That's the next phrase in verse number one. So what this means is it's not I go to Costco and there's no free samples. This is I go to Costco and there's, there's nothing on the shelves, there's nothing in the freezer, there's nothing to be found. There's a famine, there's a dearth. People need food. And the irony is that we're going to focus on this family, this man named Elimelech, and it tells us in the next phrase that he was a man of Bethlehem, Judah. Judah, the region, Bethlehem, the city. Bethlehem is known as the house of bread. So the irony here, the contrast, is in the house of bread, where typically there's lots of food and there's lots of flourishing, now there's a famine and there's not food and there's not flourishing. And this is intended, if you look at the book of Judges, you'll find God intends for these things to be a wake-up call for his people. He intends to introduce hardship to them, not because he's capricious, not because he's uh, evil and he's out to get them and he just wants to get his pound of flesh in an effort to win them back and bring them back and turn them back to himself, he would introduce oppression. He would introduce famine. He would introduce plagues for these people to turn and to say, where have we gone? What have we done? Let's turn back to the Lord. So he brings this. Now, bad things that happen in your life aren't always be a, a consequence of sin, but in this instance, really, it, it probably is that God's trying to bring them back, and there's a man, and this is his response. His response is not what it should have been, which is a pattern that God has all through the Scriptures, that if my people, which are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and will seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, then I will forgive their sins, then I will heal their land. And bring back the bread, bring back the food, take away the famine. Instead of operating by that principle of repentance so that God would turn the tide, this man decides to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. Now, if you're in the habit of taking notes, I want you to underline that word sojourn in the scriptures. He decides that he is going to sojourn or take a temporary stay in Moab. What's Moab? Moab is 30 to 50 miles away. Moab is a pagan country. Uh, the introduction of the Moabites actually comes from Lot. If you remember Abraham and Lot back in Genesis, uh, Lot was a man with a lot of problems, one of which was that he had an incestuous relationship with his daughter and impregnates his daughter, and from that pregnancy comes the Moabites. And these people began to be known as people that had horrific family dynamics, lots of sexual sin, and they worship false gods. And God had forbidden his people to live amongst the Moabites and other pagan nations, and he had forbidden his people to marry the Moabites. And this man, Elimelech, says, there's famine, it's a tough time, I am going to go there and sojourn. And then you find in verse number two, the name of the man was Elimelech, the name of his wife, Naomi, the name of the two sons, Malon and Kilion. 
Ephratites of Bethlehem, Judah, and they came into the country of Moab, and they, and then underline this, continued there. Verse 1, there's a famine, let's go sojourn. Verse 2, there's still a famine, let's continue, let's, let's, let's build a foundation, let's put the stakes in the ground, let's continue here. And here's the first principle I want you to know this morning. Be careful where you sojourn, because you might live there. A man who best we know, and I think there's a contrast in verses 1 and 2, meant to tell us he was not intending to stay, he was not intending to park it there, he was not intending to live and dwell as God had forbidden them to, but he gets there and he sojourns, and all of a sudden, before you know it, days turn to weeks, weeks turn to months, months turn to years, and we'll find in a minute that they're there 10 years for a decade. But they've parked and they've continued to be with the Moabites, and this temporary stay turns not so temporary. So get the picture, God's people, national emergency takes place. Because of this national emergency, we are going to leave the people of God, we're going to leave the house of God, and we are going to separate from them temporarily, but then temporary becomes permanent, and all of a sudden a long time has gone by and the same pattern has continued. Now, does that ring a bell at all? Does it, does it, does it take me too much to apply that? Anyone else know some people that have lived in a day and age where it seemed like right was wrong and wrong was right, and you kind of scratch your head and say, am I off my rocker? Like, am I crazy that I have a moral compass and, and that, you know, there is right, there is wrong, there is good, there is evil anymore? And in the, in the midst of that society and nation, that there comes a national emergency. Not famine, but plague, pestilence, uh, uh, COVID, right, a pandemic. And the people of God say, you know what, because of this national emergency, let's temporarily separate ourselves from the people of God, separate ourselves from the house of God, because who knows what's happening. And 99% of people in churches did that for a week or two or or a month, as did our church. And I think that that's extremely defensible at that point in time, that 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 was a temporary thing, that we're going to do this temporarily. We'll be that together on Easter or shortly thereafter, and we'll get back together. But wouldn't you know it, weeks turn to months, Months turn to, we're almost at years. We're almost there. And there still are. Now, I, under, I understand right now in this, in this day that there's a lot of sickness going around, that there's a, a ton of, of COVID being passed around the air right now. I saw on the news last night that the University of Pittsburgh did a, did a, a, a shelter in place. Where I understand that things are ramping back up again, and, and, and there's a lot of sickness going around right now. I, I get that. But here's, here's what I'm saying. There are a lot of people in our church and in other churches, really in every church, that had every intention of a temporary removal from spiritual nutrition, and that temporary has not been so temporary. And there still are many who have legitimate health issues and have to, have to really play this in a very sensitive way. And I am sympathetic to that, and I do not want to guilt trip anyone in that boat, but Time has passed, and the amount of people that are, are away from the people of God and house of God for legitimate health issues versus the amount of people that are now away because of habit issues has really changed. And I know that you're here, so you're like, don't talk to me, okay? I'm here. So maybe I should talk to the people on the camera, okay? People on the camera, live stream. Those that are watching this a week afterwards on, on the TV broadcast. Health reasons, Fine. Habit reasons, bad. Choosing to remove 
yourself from the people of God and the house of God is never a good thing. This, that you're going to see in a, in a moment that there are some disastrous consequences that pop up in the life of this family because they have ceased to be around God's people. And God never wanted this for them. He knew it would be bad. He knew negative influences would come their way. He knew that the positive influences that, that should be there wouldn't be there any longer. And he knew this would be detrimental. So he had told them in his word, don't do this, don't do this. But they do. Now, let me, let me move away from COVID for a minute. Let's just go in general. I've never met someone who's in third grade, and you say, what do you want to do with your life? And they say, I'd like to be an alcoholic. Never, never had it. I never met someone in, in fourth grade, in junior high. Hey, what's your plan? Do you know what? I want to go to rehab at least three times for my drug addiction. Never, not once. And everybody who starts to play with drugs thinks I'm sojourning. No one enters into that thinking, this is going to be permanent, I'm going to live here, this is going to be a, a real vice in my life, this is going to, to hurt me massively, and I'm just going to be here, and I'm going to be addicted and struggling. And str Nobody thinks that. It's always, I'm going to play, I'm going to have fun, I'm going to experiment, this will just be a temporary stop. But if you're not careful, you end up living there. And the principle you can apply to so many areas of your life that you have to tread carefully what you choose to do, the decisions that you make, the places you lead your family. You have to choose wisely and lead wisely because where you sojourn, you could end up living. And they end up in this, in this story living there. And here's what happens, verse number three. Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died. Now, we don't know why he died, but we do know this. I can say with certainty the first five verses of the book of Ruth are meant to be a red flag that just waved at you, a flare shot in the air to say, look, let's talk about some really painful stuff that happened. It's really compressed, but it's, this is not pretty, this is not good. He dies, and she was left and her two sons. So verse 4, here's what the boys did. They took them wives of the women of Moab. The name of one was Orpah and the name of the other Ruth, and they dwelled there about 10 years. Underline it again, they dwelled there. Dad sojourned. Dad chose to stay. Now dad's gone. Now the boys are making decisions. What are they going to do? Marry women of Moab. Shouldn't have done it. Now they're going to dwell. And it says that when it's all said and done, 10 years. So here is dad deciding, and now sons are deciding, and they're all making a mess of it. And the principle I want you to know is that a leader's decisions always affect those being led. Now, you can apply this to your business. You can apply this to those students that you teach in the classroom and that you're responsible to lead that classroom. You can apply this in a lot of different ways. But the primary application that I want to make this morning is, is really the family context that's here from a little like that he's responsible to lead his wife and his children, and he fails. He fails to do this. And then the sons fail. Now, not because they had to, but certainly dad's decisions affected them. And if he would have never taken them to Moab, there's a very, very, very strong chance that they're not in Moab, that they're not marrying the wrong girls, that they're not sticking to Moab, and they're not making poor decisions for their life. But Elimelech leads poorly. His name literally means, Elimelech, the name means God is my king. 
And he's this man that there's this lip service that God is his king, but he doesn't live like it. He doesn't come under the word of God. He doesn't come under the will of God. And he makes a decision for his family that we are in Bethlehem, and things aren't going so well, but I look at the economic climate, and over there in Moab, it seems like it's going better. There's, there's maybe a better job opportunity, and he decides to move his family there. Now, you tell me, talk back to me, yes or no. Is moving your family a sin, yes or no? No, very good. You're great students. You're a great class. No. But the, the question is not, is it a sin to move? The question is, does God want them to move to Moab? In that, you can unequivocally say, no, he did not want them to. Because he had told them. He had put it in his word. I don't want you to do this. And now it becomes, not, not that he moved his family. He could have moved maybe to Nazareth, or he could have moved to Jerusalem or somewhere like that. And that would have been acceptable via the word of God and his laws that he would laid down. But when, when Elimelech chooses to do this, he chooses to take his family away from the people of God in the presence of God, and he cuts them off at the knees. This is a man, Elimelech is a man, who will provide for his family financially. He will put bread on the table, food on the table. Those are good things. Those are commendable things. But he neglects to provide for his family in a spiritual way. Elimelech is a guy, and honestly, he's like a lot of Christian men that I've met. That I will provide, I will go to work, I will, I will try to be a good husband and father in this way and resource my family in a way that they need, but I will do that to the detriment of the spiritual nutrition of my family, and I will not lead in a spiritual way, and I will not really seek to put my wife in, in loving relationship with other godly women or to see my kids have good relationships with other godly children and families so that maybe one day they grow up and they marry a believer instead of someone else who, who does not believe in God. And, and, and men who will provide and will work, which is awesome and fantastic, but will neglect to lead the family in a spiritual way. And I'm here to say, don't be like Elimelech. Do provide for your family, but provide for them in every way that they need. Pray with them. Open God's word with them. Make your spiritual disciplines and rhythms, such as church attendance, something that you're faithful at and habitual at and you lead the way on. And the kids don't have to be the one saying, Dad, can we read a, can we read a Bible story tonight? Or the wife doesn't have to be the one that's... that's Dragging you along to church every which way and trying to get you to serve and trying to get you in a group. But be a guy that says, I will lead my family. And I will lead them in a spiritual way. This is a moment in the book of Ruth where, where Elimelech makes one decision that makes another decision. And his family pays a tremendous price because he failed. He absolutely failed. And here's what you find in verse number five. Last lesson. Malon and Chilion died, both of them. And the woman who was left of her two sons and her husband. Verse two, you're introduced to four people. By the end of verse five, three of them have had funerals. You read the obits on three of them. That's not good. That's not a pleasant start to a book. And what I want you to know lastly this morning is that you can choose and you will choose. You have to choose, actually. But you can't choose the consequences. Elimelech chooses to, to do this with his family, and the consequences were disastrous. 
Each and every one of you has agency. Man, woman, boy, girl, doesn't matter. You have agency. You can choose, but you have to choose carefully. You have to choose wisely. Because if you put yourself or your family or your children in a spot that is vulnerable, the consequences can be devastating. I'll put it to you this way. You can choose to climb a 10-story building, open the window, and jump out. But you don't choose what happens after that. You, it already, it's already decided for you. Gravity takes place, you fall. That's what happens. You have no choice in the matter. The consequences will be real for you. In this instance, this is a disastrous decision, and the family pays the price. And you need to know that some choices are trivial, okay? What color shirt you wore today doesn't really matter. Where you're going to school, okay, that could be halfway important. But then you start to decide who you marry. Then you start to decide what you're going to do with Jesus. There are some decisions that are life and death and are huge. If you're going to take the bait and flirt with her or go to uh, lunch or you're going to go with gals with him to lunch and you're going to sojourn there and you're going to play with that a little bit. And some of those decisions can start to be absolutely devastating for your family. And you need to think before you make decisions, what are the consequences of this? Now, I'm out of time this morning and I hate to downshift three gears real hard to get to Jesus and the gospel. But for sake of time, I'm not going to build all the bridges. I'm just going to downshift three gears and grind through the gears a little bit, okay? This I would even apply to what you do with Jesus. The most important choice you can ever make in your life is what you do with the Lord Jesus. And you make that choice. God made you a moral creature. He gave you agency. You make that choice. But you do not choose the consequences. If you say no to Jesus, I, I want to tell you unequivocally the good and the bad. If you say yes to Jesus, then there is grace, there is mercy, there is forgiveness. He comes, he dies on the cross for your sins, he's buried, he raises from the dead. And if you will choose you this day whom you will serve, if you will make the decision to, to make Jesus Lord of your life, then he will forgive you, he will give you his grace, he will give you a home in heaven. It's awesome. But if you choose to say no to Jesus, or if you choose to try to do a middle of the road, I'm not going to say yes, but I'm not going to say no. I'm just going to kind of be in the middle and, and just, you know, put it off for another day. You're effectively refusing to say yes to Jesus, and that's a no. And that comes with consequences. That comes with the consequence of unending guilt. Because all of us have done some wrong, done some damage to other people and ourselves, have some skeletons in our closet. And that guilt weighs on us. How do you get out from that? I know, just do a lot of therapy. No. You get out from that guilt from someone forgiving you and saying, it's gone, it's done, I forgive you. If you say no to Jesus, the consequence of that is that you have peace that evades you. You'll lay your head on your pillow at night and not know, am I going to heaven, am I, am I not? Uh, do I have right standing with God? Have I done enough? And it'll plague you. The consequence of saying no to Jesus is death and hell. Heaven is real. Hell is real. You can choose to say no. You can. I'm telling you, I'm telling you say yes. You can choose to say no. But you don't get to choose the consequences. 
You get to choose if it's just dust to dust, I stay in the ground, or if I go to purgatory for a temporary period of time, which doesn't exist, by the way. Whole nother sermon. You get to choose that. But if, but you do get to say, am I going to say yes, and Jesus, you're Lord of my life, and I surrender to you, save me from my sins, I put my trust exclusively in you, not in me, not in other gods, exclusively in you, or I say no. And many of you have said yes, and I, I celebrate with you, because I have too. But some of you never have, and I hope that today will be a day. January, what is it, the 9th, 2022 start of the new year, that you'll say yes to the Lord Jesus and accept him as Savior. If you'd like to do that, I'm gonna invite you right now to pray with me. I'm gonna invite all of us to pray. And I just wanna have a moment of response and invitation as, as a church family. If you're in the room and you wanna commit some things to Jesus right now, you, you know him, you're saved, he's Lord of your life, then do, commit it to him. Pledge to him hey, I, I, I want to do this, but I need your help. I need your Holy Spirit's power to do it. But if you're in the room and you do not know Jesus as your Savior, I hope and pray that right now in this moment, you will call out to him. You say, Pastor, I don't know how to do that. Let me help. Let me maybe give you some words you could say. These, it's not a, a magic formula. You don't have to say exactly these words. But if you'll say something like this sincerely, Jesus will come in and be Lord of your life. Say, Jesus... I believe that you came to earth and died on a cross. And I even believe that that death was for my sins. And Jesus, I believe you miraculously rose from the dead. And that makes you different than anyone else. And right now, I put my faith and trust in you. Jesus, I'm trusting you to cleanse me and forgive me of all my sins. And Jesus, I'm trusting you to give me a home in heaven. And Jesus, I'm trusting you to give me right relationship with God. Jesus, it's in you and you alone I trust. You're Lord of my life. Now, it doesn't have to be exactly that, like I said, but if you will, with sincerity, ask him to, he promises that he will come in and that he will remove your sin and that he will give you peace with God. Hey, this is Pastor Mark again, and I wanted to take a moment and just say thank you for tuning in to today's message. I hope that the message both challenged and encouraged you from the Word of God. Maybe you're listening for the first time. I want you to know that we believe the most important decision you'll ever make is the decision to know Jesus in a personal, intimate way. To find out more about that, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash gospel. If you live in one of the four counties that are church borders, Allegheny, Westmoreland, Armstrong, Butler, and you don't have a church home, then we would invite you to come and to worship with us and join in the gospel work that God is doing here at Harvest Baptist Church. Maybe you're a regular listener and God's laying it on your heart to support the ministry and the outreach of Harvest. Your gift would help us reach more people more effectively with the gospel message. If you'd like to partner with us for ministry in Western Pennsylvania and around the world, you can visit harvestbaptist.info forward slash give. Again, thank you for listening and we'll see you next time.